0: fix that. A um, couple of announcements. First of all, you don't need to stack the chairs after service today. Amen to that. See, sign up for the setup crew. It's easy. Um, um, and second of all, and I'll get in trouble for this. Could my wife stand up just real quick? Yeah, I know. I know. Just real quick. Just real quick. Please. Come, now you're embarrassing me. Come on, stand up. <laughs> hey guys, so hold on. This is a uh, a lot of you guys don't even know, this is my wife, um, and 18 years ago today, my best friend saved my life by marrying me. Um, and so, so if, you, if you love this church and if you're blessed by this church, what you need to know is that a lot of what goes on here is, at least as far as my involvement is concerned, is because of the help that the Lord has given me and my wife and because she does so many things that free me up to be able to serve so many other people. So um, I just want to brag on her for just a second. I love you. Amen. <clears throat> yeah. And I know, never again. I know, never again. <laughs> She'll be like, if you want another 18 years, you will never do that again. <laughs> yeah, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 today. What did I say, 1 Corinthians? See, I was testing you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I didn't feel like you guys learned 1 Corinthians really well, so we're starting (laughs) over. And uh, we're going to start in verse 12. The Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, says this. For our boast is this. The testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge, and I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this. I wanted to come to you first so that, I'm, that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I facilitating, was I facilitating when I said this, when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? That's vacillating. Let's try that again. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we study these things, as we discuss these things, that Lord, your spirit would move in this place, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would be our teacher this morning. I pray, God, that you would guide and even guard the words that should come out of my mouth, but that also you would teach even beyond them, Lord, speaking to your people through your word yourself. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would enlighten and awaken our mind, our spirit, and our hearts to the truth of your word. We pray, God, that you would just bless us by your presence through your word this morning and your spirit in our hearts and minds. So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O my King and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So here we are in 2 Corinthians. We're going to finish up chapter 1 today. Um, well, with the exception of the last two verses, they'll be part of, it's really kind of a bleed into chapter 2. Um, and we're going, to, we're going to spend a little bit of time dissecting a couple of things um, in particular. Um, Something that I tend to get fired up on from time to time, and maybe you've heard me say before, but you're going to get to hear it again this morning because it's important. Um, I want to comfort you to some degree. When we get into the meat of 2 Corinthians later on in some of the middle chapters, we'll be taking on some bigger chunks of scripture at a time. Uh, But this morning, there's some stuff in here in this text that I think is really good for us to make sure that we have this foundation in our back pocket, if you will, moving forward. And so what we understand now from our time so far in 2 Corinthians is the fact That Paul is writing to a church that he birthed. He's the spiritual father for this church. He's the one that planted this church, raised up leaders at the church. He cares and loves this church in spite of the horrific behavior he has seen in this church over the past six years. They're a train wreck. I mean, a train wreck, and yet with incredible grace, he continues to minister to them. He continues to pray for them. He continues to pour into them. And we know that this passage, as opposed to 1 Corinthians, is written from a very different perspective, 1 Corinthians is sort of an in-your-face, what-are-you-doing kind of a letter. But 2 Corinthians comes less from that, I'm going to get in your face and we're going to have to deal with some stuff. And more for a, from a broken heart of a father who sees his children headed in a dangerous and difficult direction. It's the most emotional letter that Paul will write. And he's writing to a group of people who he has poured himself into, he has for them, he has loved them, and he has cared for them. But since his absence, some other teachers have come in. He refers to them later as super apostles. And they've come in with kind of the original prosperity theology, coming in and telling them like, look, you guys, you're following this guy Paul over here. But look, he's clearly not the anointed apostle of God. I mean, look at him. He's always suffering. He's always struggling. He's always going through stuff. If God really had His hand of favor on him, do you think God would let His favorite go through something like that? And these guys were polished. And they were coming in there with this picture of just wealth and prosperity. And they spoke eloquently and they just looked so good. And so they came in and began to undermine Paul every chance they got, throwing him under the bus, causing the people of Corinth to doubt Paul's heart. You ever had that happen before? Someone that you love dearly, maybe a family member, maybe a close friend, and your heart towards them has always been sincere, and yet somehow, at some point, the assumption becomes against you. Suddenly they're doubting your heart. Instead of assuming the best, they're instantly assuming the worst. This is what Paul is going through here, and he's doing it against the backdrop of these people that are just promising comfort and wealth and blessing to these people if they'll follow their teaching. And so Paul's got a really difficult task. He has to deal with issues in the church, so he does have to sort of get in their face to some degree, but he has to be careful how he does it because it's a group of people that are losing some trust in him. They've got people on the ground right there in their ears saying, you can't trust that guy. He says he's for you, but he's not really. And so now here as we begin verse 12 of Second Corinthians chapter 2. Paul begins now to address, we've we've now kind of finished the introduction, if you will, and Paul's now moving into the body of the text and sort of his defense of his own character, but as well as his theology and the teachings of the gospel. And so he has to do this right away by dealing with this issue of false assumptions. Does he really like us or does he not? And it's all come about because of travel arrangements. Travel arrangements have changed plans have changed. We look at verse 15. It says, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come see you first that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on the way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. So Paul, at some point, had made a plan. I'm going to make my way to Macedonia. I'm going to stop and visit Corinth. And then on my way back, I'm going to stop there again. But somewhere along the line, his plans changed. Something came up. We don't really know. Some people even speculate that he had been in shipwrecks since then, and so now he's going to be taking a land route to Macedonia because he's sort of done with boats. But uh, don't really know for sure, but something changed along the way. And so the people of Corinth who had found out about his original plan to come through there and visit him, now find out he's not coming. And so these super apostles, if you will, these false teachers that are there and kind of in their ear are throwing Paul under the bus every chance they get. And one of the ways that they do that is they come in and they say, see, look, he's not really for you. He's not for you. Oh, he's saying yes. Oh, he's saying he likes you. But what he's doing, he's saying, yeah, yeah, I'm going to come see you. But he's saying this from the flesh, just looking for a different opportunity. And if a better option, if a better opportunity comes along, he's going to bail on you and he's going to go with like Ephesus, for example. He loves those guys. You ever see how much time he spends there? He likes them better than you. And he, he, he says, yes, yes, yes. But really what he means is no, no, no. And he's just kind of playing you guys and leading you on. This is what they're saying. And so the Corinthian people listen to these voices and they're doing what's really not just a Corinthian thing. It's kind of a human thing, isn't it? They're assuming the worst. They're just diving right into assuming the absolute worst. Yeah, Paul's not for us. He's not really for us. He's against it. He says yes, yes, but he doesn't really mean it. I mean, easily offended. This is a very human thing, right? I mean, have we not all experienced this in some relationship or another in our own lives? yes. That years of history of being for someone or being friends with someone or loving someone can get completely tossed aside because one situation occurs and we just have this human proclivity to just assume the worst in it. Someone's plans changed and it's going to leave you out of the picture. Well, it must be that they don't like you. It couldn't be that just life happened and got in the way. This is what Paul is dealing with. So, yet even though, this is what's amazing about Paul. This guy has been railroaded and thrown under the bus. He's been accused and beaten down by them over and over. And remember, if you remember our introduction to 2 Corinthians, during this six-year period, he actually went there and visited them, and it was a grievous visit for him. He was accused just relentlessly, and none of his people stood up for him. And he left there incredibly discouraged, and yet he's still able to, with grace, continue to pour into them continue to be for them continue to to pray for them and and he still calls them the seal of his apostleship which is unbelievable well the reason that he's able to do that number one is the text tells us in verse 12 our boast is this the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity not by earthly wisdom but by the grace of god and supremely so toward you One of the reasons Paul is able to endure relentless attacks on his own character by these people is because he understands, if you remember going back even into 1 Corinthians previously, 1 Corinthians 4, he says, it's a very small thing for me to be judged by you or any other human court, any other human wisdom, the ultimate judge Paul knows is God. And so when it really comes down to it, Paul has, you guys know the phrase, there's no softer pillow than a clear conscience. And so Paul, in the end, always has his integrity to hold on to. They may be bailing on me, but I'm not bailing on them. And that provides for him, if you will, a pillow of conscience that gives him rest to know that he is continuing to act with integrity. And on that day when he stands before God and God is his ultimate judge, he's not worried so much about what they think. His ultimate concern is what God would have him do. And so it enables him to continue to do the right thing even when they absolutely don't deserve it. We would do well to do the same. We tend to go more the conditional love approach. Like, I'm going to love them, love them, love them. All right, I tried. I'm out. And yet Paul says, no, look, I know what my calling is. My calling is to love these, my children in Christ, these, my brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of how they react. And it is a far bigger thing to stand before God than it is to stand before them. So he has a clear conscience about his calling, but also he has confidence in the day of the Lord. Look at verse 13. For we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge, and I hope you fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge to us, that on the day of the Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. The day of the Lord is a phrase used throughout the Scriptures to refer to that day of judgment, that day of days when all understanding is made clear, when God Himself is there, and when suddenly we understand everything for exactly what it is. And Paul has absolute confidence that on that day, when the veils are removed, when the proclivity of sin to want to assume the worst in other people has been removed, that they're going to know and understand his heart for them. That God will be the one that will reveal all things to them. And so he knows, I will just do what God has called me to do, and I will leave all of that up to God. He'll work those things out, and on that day, you'll boast of me, he says. What he means is, you'll see our heart towards you, and you will be proud of that in the same way as Paul says that I boast in you, which is an amazing statement that he's even able to say that. But he has such love for them apart from their behavior, apart from the things that they're doing, simply because they're his children in the Lord, his brothers and sisters in Christ. He has so much love for him that he continues to say, they are the seal of my apostleship. When people say, are you an apostle? I say, yes. And for proof, here are the Corinthians. That's an unbelievable statement. You would think he would point to the Ephesians or the Philippians who are just joyful in suffering, but nope, he turns and he says, these guys are proof of my calling in God. And Paul has absolute confidence that one day when all of that is revealed, when all those things are taken away, God's going to work those things out. And maybe that's a word of encouragement for some of us here because it's just inevitable We're in a fallen world with broken relationships. Difficulty's gonna come. People are gonna assume the worst in you. And you know, sometimes we can work so hard to try to defend ourselves in situations it just makes matters worse. You ever been in that before? But Paul has this, by the grace of God, ability to continue in integrity and deal with the people of Corinth the way he's called to deal and just trust that God's gonna take care of that one day. Paul's way more concerned with his integrity than he is his reputation, because you can have an amazing reputation and zero integrity whatsoever, right? Washington, D.C. Excuse me. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like you can have an awesome reputation, but who knows what's going on behind the scenes. But for Paul, it is a much bigger deal to stand before God and to say, I did what I was called to do and I loved them regardless. And let God work out the details of their reputation This is what Paul does, and he has been attacked on every level by the people of Corinth, and yet he can say with full conscience that he has behaved with sincerity towards them, and supremely so toward them. Though Paul is completely innocent of all their accusations, he just continues to graciously love them, though they don't deserve it. It's important to think about for a second. He continues to love them, though they don't deserve it. Even in the songs that we just sang just a few moments ago, the idea that He took our place, that you would take my place, that you would bear my cross, think about that for just a second. You know you. Do you deserve that? Does our conduct, if you will, our integrity before God, let's talk about that, the day of the Lord, that day when all things are made sight, that day when even the deep, dark secrets of the soul, God knows... And to think about the reality that the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, would willingly take my place, forget the Corinthians, me, that he would take my place, that is an unbelievable truth. Now, that's an important backbone to something else that goes on here in this text. I want to take just a few minutes today. To consider something here because this particular passage, what Paul goes on to say, becomes sort of the backbone of some really important theological misunderstandings and misgivings and just plain false teachings that we need to understand really well moving forward. Because the idea here is this, though they don't deserve it, Paul continues to act with integrity. He continues to love these guys. So how is Paul able to do that? Why would Paul love these people that so clearly do not deserve his love and emotion and all of this angst that he goes through? He's on the edge of of depression, for goodness sakes. Why do they deserve this? Verse 17. Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, no, no at the same time? Verse 18, as surely as God is faithful... Our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has put his seal upon us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, or the word could also be as a down payment. So Paul uses this opportunity in defending himself, but also as an opportunity to be able to proclaim to them once again, the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything's a teaching moment with Paul. So how is it that Paul is able to do this? Why would Paul continue to love these people? Why would he continue to treat them like this? Because that's what God does for them. That's the gist of it. That's the gist of his answer. He's saying, I am for you because Christ is for you. Christ is not, well, I don't know. Christ is all in for you. He delights in you. He is for you. And I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And I am for you in that same way. This is what he teaches. See, in the Old Testament, there are thousands of promises that God gives us. I've got one of them. If you guys could put up Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 22. In the book of Deuteronomy, can we kill the lights on this one side right here? If somebody knows where that switch is, that would be really helpful so they can read. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, there's, this is an example of one of the many, many promises here in Scripture that are God's promises for the people of Israel. But look at the framework. This is kind of the model by which most of them follow. Check this out. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways and holding fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. This is a really popular passage in the Jewish faith still to this day. And the promise is this. And if you will love the Lord with all your heart, if you will hold on to his promises, if you will be careful to follow his word, and if you'll be careful to cling to him, then he will drive out your enemy from before you. He will give you the land. Even nations mightier than you have no chance against you because God is on your side. And they go, ah, this is a great promise. I don't think it is. Because look at it a little more closely. If... Do you love the Lord with all your heart? That's one of the conditions. Don't raise your hand. But can you honestly say that with all your heart, above anything else, apart from the distractions, the temptations of the world, the lusts of the flesh, any of those kind of things, can you say that you always, that your heart is completely and totally devoted in purest of love to God and God alone? Can you say that I am faithful to follow God's commands in every way. Not turning left or right, but I'm going to follow the path of God that he's laid out in front of me. I'm going to do everything that he says. I'm going to be careful to do it all. I won't assume the worst in anybody. I'll never gossip. I'll never uh, uh, be lu- I'll never lust. I'll never lie. I'm going to be I'm going to be I'm going to follow everything. Can you say, I will cling to the Lord above anything else. I will cleave to him. I will hold him. I will hold fast to him and nothing will take my eyes off of my Lord. Because if you can say those things then the great news is, is then it says I will drive out these nations before you and there's good things. But if you can't say that if you can't do the if, then the then part doesn't kick in. And so it becomes a difficult promise. It becomes a Well, I want that. I want God to be for me. I want God to drive out my enemies. I want God to protect me and establish me and care for me. But I have no shot at doing all of these things because I'm broken. I'm fallen. I'm a sinful man. So this will never be me. I'll never be able to claim that promise. That's the format for so many of the promises in the Old Testament. And it's truth. And when you understand that, it's not a great promise, Until Jesus comes. And then God Himself intervenes in human history, becomes Jesus Christ in the flesh, and He does all of this perfectly. He loves the Lord God with all His heart, above all things. He is careful to follow all of God's commandments, fulfills every every jot and tittle of the law. He follows all of it perfectly. He never assumes the worst. He never gossips. He never lusts. He never does any of those things. No white lies, no orange lies, no lies. He is Perfectly faithful to God's word. And even when there are, knowing that there's difficulty coming, knowing that the cross and suffering is coming, nothing can pry him away. He clings to God the entire way. That's his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane I have glorified you till the end. I have clung to you till the end. I have depended on you till the end. I have obeyed you and I am going to obey you even unto death on the cross. He does it all perfectly. And yet then he goes to the cross and pays the price for all of our failures in those things. He takes the punishment that we deserve. And in exchange to those who will believe in him and trust him as their savior, the scriptures say we are then robed in the righteousness of Christ. And all of these promises, as Paul puts it, become yes for us. In other words, this. Jeff... If you will cling to me with everything, if you will love me above all things, if you will be faithful to do every single thing I call you to do, then I will protect you. I will uphold you with my mighty right hand. All of these different promises. And then when he looks at me at my track record, which has done none of those things, I'm robed in the righteousness of Christ. So he doesn't see my performance. He sees Christ's faithfulness. And he says, done. Because Christ upheld your end of the bargain, I uphold mine. That's an amazing reality. The mature believer in Jesus Christ understands that the blessings of God are yes and amen. They are promised to us, not because we have deserved them, not because we earn them, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And this is why Paul says this here in 2 Corinthians, that they are true in Christ. This is why we pray in this way. This is why we say in Jesus' name, because we're praying and invoking the very name of Jesus who has fulfilled these conditions, if you will. He has fulfilled all of the law and our behalf. And so because of that, I can come to God and pray that he will bless me. Not because I deserve blessing, but because of what Christ did. When I'm sick, I can come to God and pray that he would heal me or my family or people in the church, and I can do it with boldness. Not because I deserve healing, I deserve death, but because Jesus Christ did. All down the list, I can pray that God would provide for my family. I can pray that God would protect us or our nation. We can pray all of these different things, but we pray them in Jesus' name because it is through Christ that these promises are all yes and amen. If it was through Jeff, it would be no, no, and very much no. But Jesus Christ has fulfilled all of these things, and the promises of God are ours in Christ. That is really, really great news. And so the promises of God throughout all the scriptures then become yes and amen to us in him. And Numbers 23, 19 says, God's not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He said he will do it. He has spoken. Will he not fulfill it? And the obvious answer to that is what? Yes, yes. Yes and amen. That is amazing truth. God is for us because Jesus came for us. Does that make sense? That our, our very sin nature, Paul tells us in Romans, makes us enemies with God. But it's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and the way he lived with total obedience. When people ask you, what is the gospel? Don't leave out the fact that Jesus lived perfectly in our place. It's a really important part because the perfect life of Jesus Christ, that's the righteousness that he gives those who believe in him by faith. And because of Jesus's obedience, God is now for us. Amen. Amen. But now you can go sideways with this really quick this text in particular is one that is used to go a little too far so you get things like this and you get those who are, you've heard me refer to it before you know of it prosperity theology and the prosperity theologians which are rampant in the world today and very much so in the United States would say that's right In Jesus Christ, all the blessings, all the promises of Scripture are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so now, therefore, that you are a child of God, you can claim any of these promises you want. They're just sitting there waiting for the taking. Because of Christ's faithfulness, you can claim healing for your life right now. It's not God's desire that you would suffer in healing. You've got the promises of Jesus, man. You need to just claim it. You need to walk by faith and understand them. And it goes into all sorts of weirdness and, and just, just false theology. Now, now, let's clarify. Is God a good father who desires to bless his children? Yes or no? Yes. Amen, he is. The scriptures say, if we being evil know how to good, give, give good gifts to our children, how much so will the Father in heaven give good gifts to those who are his? So is God a good father who desires to follow or to bless his children? Absolutely. Romans 8 says he didn't even spare his own son but gave him up for us all. Will he not also graciously give us all things? And we believe all the scripture is true, amen? So we believe God desires to give good gifts, amen? Okay, so God is fabulously generous, desires to bless his children, But the question we have to think about here for just a minute is, what is the ultimate goal of all of these things? Is it about me or is it about him? I mean, the passage here says that these things are for the glory of God. So how do these things work out? Because there'd be those in the prosperity theology that would say, look, the scriptures say you don't have because you do not ask. That's right, it's James 4.2. But James 4.3 then says, you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So there's a difference between understanding the promises of the glory of God versus I'm now gonna live my life in such a way that I'm claiming for myself wealth and prosperity and all of these sort of things that these people uh, uh, proclaim. The, the prosperity theology, almost all of TBN, though I know like Charles Stanley's on there, he's good, he's Mr., uh, Listen, listen, if you ever watch him, he's good. But you need to understand, there's just like two Baptists in here that know what I'm talking about, that's okay. (laughs) Some of you, Jeff, come on now. Why do you rail on these prosperity theology people like this? They are brothers and sisters in Christ. They're talking about Jesus on TV. Why would you rail on this so much? And this is what I want you to understand. You need to know this. Because if you don't, you can take passages like this, or people can take passages like this and use them to try to prove why God doesn't follow through on his promises. And because there are people in the Christian faith throughout the world that struggle about these, through these sorts of things. And the idea of this, prosperity theologians will teach that the blessings and riches and all the, the goodness that comes with being part of or under a God who loves his children and all the promises are yes and amen, you just need to claim those things, that these are such a blessing, these are a good thing and what they end up doing is taking that and upholding them above the giver himself. The blessings of wealth, the blessings of prosperity, all of these things become more important than the God who gives them. And yet, First Timothy says this, "'But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it, in the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare.'" into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs this is timothy's words leave those up there for a minute he says look the love of money to to set blessing and wealth and prosperity as the goal by which we will desire i'm after those things he says those aren't a blessing, that those are, those are the root of evil, that that very thing has caused people to fall away from the faith, has caused people pain and destruction and difficulty. And then Jesus comes, as you guys know, and teaches it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. When you start reading through the actual Bible as opposed to some of the things that are being taught in our world out there, what you understand is that actually riches in a lot of times, and in fact, in most cases, it's not a blessing, it's a curse. Riches keep people from the grace of God because people learn to depend on their resources rather than the God who grants them. Riches and wealth disguise need. Because a lot of things in life can be easy and can be paid for, and yet they inevitably let people down all the time. They're a false savior that disguises the need for the ultimate and real savior. And yet people come along after hearing these teachings and they'll say, God's desire is that we should be rich and have anything we want. Well, there's a contradiction there. Something doesn't seem to really add up. And then, and this may be a little bit of where my personal bent comes in with some of this, though I think it should be a burden we all have. These people with this message go from America, and they go to Africa, and they go to India, and they go to Asia, and they go to the Philippines. And they fill up stadiums with thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And they begin singing this same message to the people of of uganda i've seen it firsthand in countries all over the world and they say look god doesn't desire you to live in poverty god's a generous father who wants to bless you with all things today if you had the faith you can claim it and the way you show your faith well we just happen to have a bunch of baskets we'll start passing those around and you can demonstrate your faith to god by giving and then if you claim it and if your faith is strong enough your wife won't die of aids And your babies won't die stillborn. And you won't live in poverty. And your grain won't dry up. And you won't get raided by your enemies in jungle villages. None of those things will happen if you have enough faith. And they send the baskets around and around and around and around and around. And it crushes people. We have seen this so many times, firsthand, right there, America, who should be giving out of our incredible wealth, people from our nation going over there, and you get instant respect, because they've been taught that wealth is a sign of God's blessings, just like the people in Corinth are are learning from these false teachers. Look, we are God's anointed, can't you tell? And so these Americans go over there, us who should be giving of ourselves to all these people in the world, and take. And we send the baskets around again and again and again. And so these people come and they hear it. And look, these are the white, educated, wealthy, studious men of God. And it's the music's just right. And it's this big moving opportunity. And so they go, I'm in, I'm going to give. And these people who have nothing are giving out of what little tiny bit they have because of the promise of a healing that's just not exactly there. And so when these revivals and these crusades go blowing out of town and the crops still wither and the children still die and the poverty is still there, then there's, these people are crushed. We have seen, I I remember talking with a girl last time we we were in Uganda, a woman who had been part of a different church, and she had now landed at the church that we work with in Imbarara, and she was wrestling with some illness that she was still dealing with. She had some legitimate handicaps, some legitimate sickness that she was dealing with, and she had been run out of a church, a prosperity theology church there, and had been actually called up on stage in front of the entire congregation uh, as an example of someone who wasn't living a life of faith in the promises of god and they ran her out of the church this happens all the time happens all the time and what ends up being is it, it does not prepare the people of uganda for the reality of christian living that says through many hardships through many tribulations and hardships we must enter into the kingdom of god you guys remember we talked about this like last week right That Christianity by default is going to have difficult seasons because number one, you're an image bearer of God in a fallen world. Number two, you're choosing to follow Jesus and live in such a way that is for a kingdom that is yet to be fully inaugurated and is in opposition to the principles and the values of the world around us. And number three, just practically, you're choosing to live for others instead of self. So in this dog eat dog world, you're intentionally choosing to put yourself last. So that just means just by default, things are going to be harder. Sometimes you're going to mow your yard and the neighbor's yard. Sometimes you're going to work for money to provide for your family and also give to others. And that's going to make times difficult financially. And that's just the reality of it. Christianity, the normal experience of Christianity is difficult. And prosperity theology that focuses on nothing but blessings and says, you need to claim these things. God wants you to be wealthy. It does not prepare people for the reality of just normal Christian living, which says things like, take up your cross and follow me. Not take up your bark lounger and let's cruise. Amen? And besides this, consider this for a minute. In the world today, they tell us that there are approximately 1,500 people groups in the world today that have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, that know nothing of Jesus Christ. 1,500 people groups, groups of people with their own distinct culture and customs and practices and languages throughout the world in which at this very moment there are no people actively engaging that people group with the gospel. And we got to go, right? Right? I mean, as Christians, we're called to spread the gospel throughout the world. So who's going? A prosperity theologian? No way. I have a friend of ours. He was actually the pastor of uh, Rogue Valley Christian Church here in town, Russell Vaughn. And he came to me about two years ago. We became friends when we did the iHeart Rogue Valley event a couple years ago. You guys might remember. And, and he and I became really close. And one day he took me to lunch. He was like, man, I need to talk to you. I need some counsel. But you can't tell nobody this. And I'm like, all right, let's talk. He said, I think the Lord's calling me and my family to resign my pastoral position and to move to India, kids and everything, to an unreached people group in India, a place that has never heard the gospel before ever. I was like, wow, I'm glad I haven't gotten that call. I'm like, was it email? Because I'll stop checking. Like that's just, you know what I mean? Like how did that message come through? Because that is a massive call on someone's life. And this is the pastor of this church in town that's just growing and doing really well. And he's like, no, I have this burden on my life. And he starts talking to me about the realities of in these areas, people are actually dying. In these areas, people are actually being persecuted because they're coming into Hindu faith areas and they're preaching the gospel of Jesus there and they're being persecuted for their beliefs. And, and I'm gonna go over there with my three children and my wife because this is what God's put on our heart to go. There is no promise of blessing in that. There is no promise of like, at least in terms of the way we tend to define it. There's no promise of comfort. There's no promise of wealth. He is not doing that for the money, Right? But he's going. Because remember we talked about it last week. The goal is faithfulness to God's call without fear of suffering. So he's going to go. And throughout the world, there are people being raised up that are going, I know this is gonna be difficult, but they're choosing to live for a completely different set of promises, not needing this immediate gratification and this immediate help. They understand that life's gonna be hard for serving God, but they're living for something completely different. And I wanna to give too much away, but coming up here in 2 Corinthians chapter four, Paul's gonna say, for this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Now think about this, Paul was on the verge, like, wanted to die. That's how much he suffered. And he says, this momentary light affliction, it just lasts for a moment. But compared to what God has in store for us for eternity, it, it's, it's nothing. It's just 40 years. It's just the rest of my earthly life. It's nothing compared to what God has. Can you imagine that statement? Those are the people that are going and answering the call to God, of God. God. Not the people that are in it for themselves. I need my wealth, I need to claim all of these things, but people that are living for something different, namely Revelation 21. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is what Paul lives for. This is what we, as followers of Jesus, have to set up before ourselves. But we even have to be careful how we do that. Let me put it to you like this. Yeah, I hate prosperity theology. Is that pretty obvious, I think? But but let me be fair. There's two different kinds of people that are teaching or following prosperity theology. One kind is those who are sincere, but they just don't understand. There are those who are sincere in their faith and sincere in their beliefs, and they read some of these promises. They've been taught a certain way. Maybe they've never learned to read the Bible for themselves, and they read these sorts of promises in Revelation about heaven, and they understand that we're, the promises of Jesus are yes and amen in him, but they have a hard time understanding how we're the children of God and the children of the promise now, but the kingdom hasn't been fully inaugurated. How is it that God comes to relieve our burdens, but yet we're still suffering, and they struggle with this, and it's what's referred to as an over-realized eschatology. Eschatology is the study of those end times when God's going to come and establish His kingdom forever on earth, and lion and lamb will lie down together and all of those things, just the paradise restored, God will redeem all things. Eschatology is that study, and so there are those within prosperity theology that just, they lack a little bit of understanding about what's going on in Scripture, and they're claiming the promises of God for the future today. And so they're sincere in that, they're just wrong. And and it should be pointed out because it's still a misleading theology. And And so that's one element, if you will, of those that follow or espouse or teach prosperity theology. But then there's the other side, and they're crooks, and they're thieves, And they're wolves, and they are not brothers in Christ. They are people who have no real desire to pour into God's people and see them do well. What they do is they see God's people as a resource by which they can do well. And here's how you can tell that these people's uh, motives are false. Because when they want to do their healing services, they go to stadiums. And they charge 20 to 100 bucks a person to come into these healing stadiums, these healing ceremonies, places where they can pass baskets around thousands. You know where they don't go? Dornbeckers. They don't go to the children's hospital where all these little children have no hair because they're wrestling through chemotherapy and where children die every single day because of cancer. They're not preaching that theology in that wing. I've been there, never seen it. I've gone through those areas where I've had to scrub down just to get in the hallway because some of these children are so weak with illness and sickness and cancer. They don't go there. They go to the arena, and they hope people like you will come in and start putting money in the basket so they can pay for their private jets. That's why I hate prosperity theology. And it sets people up for heartache and failure and difficulty. And what it teaches people to do is espouse wealth. The very thing that the Bible says, the love of money will ruin your soul, they set it up as the primary goal for God's children. And they espouse gift above giver. And it's dangerous and it's wrong. But Paul says this, the promises of God are yes in him. The promises of God are yes in him. Verse 20, for all the promises find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God in his glory. So here's the reality, guys, and then I'll be done. Here's this. Number one, we live for the promise of God to come. We don't demand those things for ourselves today. And as the passage is going to go on to say in 2 Corinthians, God's grace is sufficient for us in this time. But the promises are true, and he is generous, and he desires to bless you beyond all belief. But look, the prize and the blessing, and even as great as heaven is going to be, heaven's not the goal, heaven's not the reward, The Bible is lavish in its description of rewards. It even says that crowns of righteousness will be given to the followers of Jesus, but we know that they're not the the goal. that that's not what it's all about. Why? Because it also says that when we get to that place and we stand before Jesus Christ, we're gonna take those crowns and throw them at his feet. We won't care about anything else compared to the glory of Jesus Christ. He's the prize. Jesus is the goal. Jesus is the most valuable thing in the universe. Nothing we desire can compare to Jesus Christ. And if we live for wealth, we are selling ourselves short because Jesus is so much greater than wealth. He's not just the ticket to the reward. You understand? He's the reward. Can somebody amen that? He's the reward, right? Are you guys tracking with that? Like, he's better than that. And we have this tendency to get so sidetracked by all these little things along the way, but the reality is, Jesus is the reward. That's how Paul can say, I'm gonna keep ministering to these people no matter what they say of me, because God's grace is sufficient for me. But because I have Jesus, I can endure suffering. Because I have Jesus, I can endure persecution. Because I have Jesus, I can continue to act with integrity towards those who do not deserve it. Because I have Jesus, I can continue to love someone who's treating me in incredibly unloving ways. Because I have Jesus, I can love others the way Jesus loves me. I can deal with those who assume the worst in me. And even those who do turn their back on me, I can forgive them because I have Jesus. And Jesus is more valuable to me than my reputation or my feelings. It is all about Jesus, all of them. That. That's really a long 45 minutes way of saying, just, hey guys, it's all about Jesus. It just is. And that's why Paul says in Philippians, as he's teaching about suffering, he says, I've learned to be content in all things. Difficult seasons, good seasons, seasons of wealth, seasons of poverty, because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not a verse that's about how you're going to win your soccer match or your boxing match next week, though that's the way it gets paraded around. It's a verse that says, I can deal with any sort of difficulty that comes my way because I have Jesus Christ and Jesus is enough. He's more than enough. So church, may that be our message. Heritage, when you get those who dangle all sorts of little things in front of you and it's something other than Jesus Christ, turn an ear, turn a deaf ear to that. Jesus Christ is the ultimate reward. Amen? Amen. Let's stand, can we? God, I thank you so much that we have you. I thank you, Lord, that you have put your spirit in our hearts. And that that is even, as you put it, a down payment for the things to come. I thank you for the reality of heaven. It is going to be amazing. God, I can't wait for the day that there are no more children dying of cancer. I can't wait for the day, Lord, that no more our families ripped apart by sin. Lord, we are desperate for the day that there is no more war in this nation or in any nation. When things like prejudice and racism and all of those things have no foothold. Lord, we long for the day when even our relationships are restored and there's no more animosity or bitterness or envy or unforgiveness. God, we long for the day when our flesh is put aside and the Spirit of God reigns over all. But more than anything, we long for the day that we see you. But God, your Scripture promises that we have you, that you have sealed us by your Spirit that we are walking after you even now, that you are with us and that you will never leave us nor forsake us. So God, I pray to a greater degree today than when we came, those here that are followers of Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that you would be a greater treasure, more valuable in our eyes today than it was yesterday. May we again see you for who you are, for how magnificent you are, for how amazing you are. Lord, more of you, less of us, Lord, may we not hold tightly to anything, wealth, health, riches, anything. May we cling to you. May our heart for you and our love for you grow more and more. And I pray that, Lord, because of that, you would give us by your spirit spirit, the ability, Lord, to act and behave with grace to those around us. Lord, these are difficult things. Our heart does not want to go in this direction, but may you rule over and reign over our heart. And may your spirit have its way with us and mold us from glory to glory. With the heads bowed and eyes closed, let me just encourage those of you that have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, please understand, you need Jesus. The Bible tells us that we are all fallen. We've all fallen short of his glory. We have all sinned and lost our way. But that there is forgiveness in Christ. There is restoration in Christ. There is healing in Christ. One day there is heaven with Christ. But apart from Christ, there's none of that. Let me encourage you, come to Jesus. It's really just as simple as we can put it. Come to Jesus. He is waiting with arms wide open to accept you, to forgive you, to pour his love on you, and to bless you as his child. There's gonna be some men and women just standing in the back in front of the curtain as we worship here and as we close our service. Let me encourage you, come to Jesus because these things are real. That heaven, that day we talked about, that day is coming. But without Jesus Christ, you will miss it. And he really wants you there. Amen? Let's sing.